Welcome to the Lure Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season four, we focus on big ideas that will change our profession. On today's episode, we discuss teaching the business of law. With our guest, Kat Moon, we're asking if lawyers truly understand the business pressures that force them into life-altering decision-making. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Hello, long lost Mike and the long Lure Life Pod. <laughs> Still here. I'm in my attic in front of this microphone for the whole time, just waiting. Just waiting, waiting to talk to you. <laughs> the long beard I haven't eaten for weeks. Yeah, it's it's been a while. This is our probably yeah. one of our longer breaks. So I think it's been us adjusting back to life, really figuring out a bunch of new, I don't know, life skills. Do you have new life skills since we last spoke? Oh, life skills. I don't know, but I definitely can say, I think the last time we recorded, we talked about how this is all like in waves and I was at the bottom of the wave, which right. you had a word for and I forget it again. The trough. The trough. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm back, like I'm, I'm cresting now. I'm in right. one of those moments. I'm working out more, sleeping okay. It feels good right now. This is a good time. So it's a good time for me to be recording at least. <laughs> Until I hit another trough. Well, that's very funny because I am in the trough now. Ah. (laughs) Or I have been. Many times over the last month, I have thought the general tone of our last episode was quite upbeat. The kids had just gone back to school. We were settling back into a bit of a work, like a real regular work day. And I was on cloud nine about that. And I think it has been, it's just been a very challenging, bumpy ride since then because the kids have been in and out of school for symptoms and the whole thing. But we're it's leveling out a bit now. But I just want to say I thought about our, our podcast listeners many times in the last month and I thought I need to just record an update <laughs> that my rosy outlook has uh, diminished somewhat. But I don't know. It's uh, I'm glad you're in the crest. At least if one of us is at the top of things, then we're we're doing well. Yeah, I most, you know, it's, it's so funny. I got, sometimes equipment changes everything. I got some like nice running apparel for the first time in my life. Feels yes. great. Yeah. 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 It's a it feels big, great. Love it. Thing. Yes. Love it. So and anyway. Good music. Good music makes all the difference. I, I'm a podcast guy when I'm running. When you're running? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. All right. Yeah. To be discussed, maybe you can share in your goods and gripes what your uh, running podcasts are. Okay. All right. We'll do cool. it. Excited for today's conversation. I have yes. to say, for many reasons, but one of them being, you have this friend who is, I see constantly bring amazing ideas in conversations, especially on Twitter. Yes. And I've only, the only reason why I've ever spoken to her is because we just spoke to her before we started recording. And so you, I'm, I'm very excited to maybe make friends with your good friend, yes. uh, <laughs> who is so impressive, Cat Moon. Yes, welcome, Kat. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Hey, oh, there it we is. We got a y'all right at the top. Oh, man, that is so fantastic. For our Canadian listeners, those are always welcome. Tell us about yourself. We, we wanted you to take the reins on your bio. So tell our listeners all about Cat Moon and as best you can. I currently teach in the program on law and innovation at Vanderbilt Law School, which is also my alma mater. I'm a Vandy Law grad. I'm also a practicing attorney. I I technically still have an active law license, though I do try to avoid actually practicing 
if at all possible. And I practiced for close to 20 years before I started teaching. I'm in my fourth year teaching, and I'm also the director of innovation design at Vanderbilt. And so in that capacity, I create our cutting edge innovation curriculum, and I deliver quite a bit of it. I'm currently teaching any one of four to five different classes at any given time. And I also direct our online executive education platform for practicing legal professionals. And in addition to that, I spend a lot of time on Twitter having really interesting discussions with people about all kinds of things. And I, before the pandemic, used to travel to all kinds of legal events. And that's actually how Darlene and I met Mm -hmm. in Toronto at one such event that I was um, conducting. Uh, we actually conducted together Human yes. Center Design Sprint for lawyers. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. I also have teenagers and that actually tells you a lot about, <laughs> about me right there. Yes, brings a whole other yes. uh, dimension. Another, yes. uh, yeah, dimension. That's <laughs> the word I'm looking for. Kat, thank you for that intro. That is part of why we wanted you to do your own intro is that you do so many things. And part of why we wanted to have you talk to us today about this topic is because you have a really interesting take. You have a different background. You're not you're not a formal part of like a university administration that you've been part of for a long time. You've practiced, you've brought that into the into the law school environment. You've done a lot of things and you have a very interesting take on the business of law as a result. So we wanted to speak with you about what are law students learning about the business of law? through those three years of law school, when we're all making the decisions about where to go to practice, what do, what do we know when we're making those decisions? So as part of what you do, you're teaching the law as a business course, correct, at Vanderbilt? I am to 120 students. Wow. I so wish I had taken that course <laughs> at, when <laughs> I went to law school. Do you have occasion to talk about what they came to law school to do? It's interesting that you pose that question because something that has come up recently. So we're in week, we're going into week 11 of 13. We have a truncated semester, week 11 of 13 for our semester. And one of my students in a conversation last week shared with me that as she is wrangling as a third year student with her employment opportunities, and she's just trying to figure out really which offer she wants to accept. She went back and read her personal statement from her Vanderbilt Law School application. And she did that so that she could get, she wanted to get back in touch with why she came to law school. And to me, that was so interesting and powerful. And I've since suggested to all of my students that they might want to want to do that. And I think when you reflect back and, and talk to the students about why did you come, the answers vary. I think that a lot of students do come with this real, frankly, burning desire to make a difference in the world. And that they see having a law degree and having a license to practice law as a very powerful way to do that. And even if they aren't falling squarely in the access to justice, public interest space, that part of the work that we are entrusted to do is still very important to them. So that's what they bring with them to law school. Um, and then they have three years of law school. And over 80% of my 120 students are going to go straight into a corporate law firm job upon graduation. And so just, you know, kind of looking at that trajectory, it is possible that some folks, maybe many of them might lose the connection with why they came to law school in the first place. There are a whole host of reasons for that to happen. But yeah, something happens in those three years. 
a whole host of reasons. And uh, I think like we have had discussions about this and it seems like there is so many reasons why that storyline almost becomes a stereotype, right? I can speak to it being true in my life, going to law school because you want to do something positive for society and build this tool and use it in such a great way. And then at least for myself, the job I I had after finishing school, my articling time was at a major firm, which that's not necessarily the mandate. Uh, so what do you think in your experience leads to folks getting into that different path, that thing separate from what they entered into law school to achieve? So as I, as I said, I think there are a whole host of reasons and obviously it's going to vary based on the individual in their circumstances and context. But I think a big one that is recognized by a lot of people is, especially in the U.S., the cost of legal education. So even though 90% of Vanderbilt Law students receive some kind of aid, usually uh, merit-based it's still incredibly expensive. I think it's like five cents short of $60,000 a year this year. And oh. yeah, no, right. It should. It's, I have it's like, no it's, idea. It's breathtaking, right? It was like, I think $22,000 a year when I was in law school from 95 to 98 and it's 60 now. And, and a lot of schools are more than 60. And so the financial commitment, even if you have a 50% scholarship, is still close to $100,000. And also keep in mind that a lot of students bring undergraduate debt with them to mm -hmm. law school. Mm -hmm. And a lot of law school students have to borrow money in addition to tuition to live on. Right. And mm -hmm. because the, the typical, the rigor of a typical traditional law school experience in the U.S. does not make it easy, if at all possible, to work during right. the school year while you're enrolled, right? And you certainly are not likely to thrive academically if you're working. So so the, I think the debt load is a real issue. And I've, I've lost count of the number of students who've come to me to say that their ultimate choice right out of law school is dictated heavily by that fact. And you, that's an undeniable truth that is not at all surprising that that is influencing the choices. I think another thing going on in the U.S. is rankings. Law schools, the ranking is heavily dependent on graduate employment, which I don't know that that in and of itself is a bad thing. I think most people come to law school so that it can <laughs> help them achieve gainful employment when they graduate. But their, their high stakes motivations for career services offices to, to place students in certain career paths, specifically those that require a JD, JD preferred, I'm forgetting the phrase for it, is not as helpful for the rankings. And and, you know, and I've realized something, this is kind of a little aside, but I think it's relevant to insert into this conversation. Even for those students who come into law school really focused on going into a public interest role, let's put debt aside. Let's say that they don't really have the debt issue. In the U.S., those public interest opportunities, not only do they not pay nearly as well as the close to $200,000 starting salary that some of these law firms pay to first-year associates, not only do they not match that, but there aren't that many of them. So it's actually quite competitive to get a public interest position. 
And so there, I think that's a factor that even students who are pretty focused on that, it might be shut out of that opportunity. And this forces them into a more traditional law firm position. As you are teaching them about the business of law and how law can innovate and so on, do you find like that things become more complex or gray as it relates to that initial goal of doing good? Because I, I, I recall in law school, so a lot of folks come in, I want to do good. And for example, a major way that you can go into public interest work, I'm sure the same in the US as, as in Canada, is you can go work for the government. And people think, great, I'm going to work for the government. But then they realize like, okay, I'm in, interested in refugee law and I'm going to go work for the government. That, you might wind up making arguments that you didn't necessarily think about that you would have to make, right? As you start to get into this, you realize not everything is as black or white as because I'm in X position, I'm always trying to achieve X outcome. And do you see surprise or sort of that enlightenment come as students learn more? I don't know that that enlightenment comes until they're actually in the practice and have the context for it. Students, when they come into law school, what information would be helpful for them to have first making the choice? And then what I'm focused on, what information can we impart once they join us in law school that is going to help them make really good decisions and stay in the profession. We lose so many really good, talented people and, and that shouldn't be right. Mm -hmm. That's, that, that's one of my goals is really, how do we, how do we keep them? How do we give them the information they need so they can make more intentional choices as they're walking this path? Well, one thing just to tie back to something Mike said too I remember being interested in one, I summered in my first year, my first summer after first year at a big firm. And at the time, I, I don't know what had gotten me onto it, but I was quite interested in environmental law, which I told them. And they said, oh, great, you can do environmental law. Okay. And I quickly learned that it was, we were acting for the polluters. That's, that's what the environmental law meant. That is not what I meant. <laughs> and I really quickly learned that the that there was a side and that the money was on, on one side for sure, sometimes on the other, but you could reasonably be expecting, depending where you ended up, that your clients might come from a certain financial background and at a large firm, that's more likely. So I don't remember anyone at any point in law school talking to us about that kind of thing. I don't remember, I think it was portrayed very, everyone has a case, we're all advocates. And I think that that's true. But I also think that one of the things that does drive people out of big firm environments is the fact that you can't really control what you're working on as a junior for many, many years. It's not like you go find the interesting work or work on something that, that jives with your principles. And I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if I would have made a different choice. Let me go back to the initial point about being handed some work that's on the opposite side of where your morals are, right? And your values. So I think that's a real problem with how much of legal education is conducted, we seem to strip all the moral inquiry out of what we study. And it just becomes this study of quote law. And mm -hmm. so that disassociation with values and morals on an individual basis, I think is actually very disorienting for students. And I think it's part of the reason that many students struggle in law school, frankly. And so not that there isn't a basis for looking, quote, objectively at things. But let's all be clear. Nothing about the law is objective. Nothing. Yeah. 
no matter how much we wish to make it so and to portray the study of the law as this objective exercise is frankly wrong and is doing a disservice to our students. So number one, (laughs) that we, we really must find a way to support students maintaining and actually building and under better understanding through self-awareness, their own value systems so that that can be part of the calculus for their decision-making when they make choices, curriculum choices in law school and choices absolutely once you leave. And so that definitely goes on the list of what we should be doing because I, I agree I do not think most students have a keen awareness of that dynamic that you identified and truly don't understand the values or lack thereof underlying certain dynamics in the profession, right? And even if you present a case study, just for a brief example that I think we can all relate to, I can learn that Harvey Weinstein has a right to a defense by a competent attorney, but it doesn't mean I would personally want to do that defense work. Someone might, and like it might not be offside someone's values or certain lawyers I really admire that defend in the criminal space, obviously, from a principled perspective. Like there is a way, whatever your principles are, I guess is what I'm trying to say, there is a way to practice them. But I think that what you're pointing out is that we don't really get people to exercise the muscle to figure out like, hey, really think about what your principles are so that you can kind of direct your career in a way, to Mike's point, if you if you want to support refugees, understand the government is the opposing party. Exactly. Right? I don't know that we exactly. learned that in law school. Exactly. Exactly. So I think the the key is, yes, to empower students to really have the opportunity to self-reflect and do that work so that they understand and are in touch with their own values, because that is very, that's very individual, right? And I, and I think that the example you gave of the criminal defense attorney is one actually that most students are aware of, but they do not get the corollary in the corporate setting, right? right? Mm -hmm. And in part, I think, because that doesn't serve law schools well, who want to send most of their students into corporate law. I think there's an argument that they want to dissuade students from looking at that too closely, frankly, because then they might choose a different path. So there's a tension there, an allegiance to different stakeholders that I think creates a tension and perhaps even a conflict. But I think giving students the opportunity, inviting them into that inquiry, and it needs to happen. Here's the other thing. It needs to happen not in a silo. And this is one reason why I do certain things in pretty much all of my classes, because if we silo that inquiry to, okay, this class is about this inquiry and it just sits over here on the side and maybe 10 students a year take it, (laughs) that's not going to have the desired impact. So this is one of those inquiries that really needs to be woven throughout and made relevant throughout this academic exercise we go through called law school. Yeah, I remember later in law school listening to a lawyer talk about the business model of their firm and being very candid with the fact that like, well, the way we actually, so we, the way we make money, when we have a really good year, that's just because the associates work way more than a workday. That's kind of the cherry on top. We kind of, you know, our overhead, we understand it all. We can work toward hitting that and breaking even. But the way we really make profit is by overworking the associates. 
is <laughs> basically that was one thing that was delivered to me. And if I had that information at the beginning of law school, I think my trajectory might have been different. What I endeavor to do is to put living, breathing humans who are in the thick of it in front of them to tell their stories. So I invite people to come into our classroom this year via Zoom and put a face to these stories and make it real and concrete so that folks can see through other people's eyes what this actually looks like, what boots on the ground looks like. And so I think they need to basically hear the same thing or the same themes often from a lot of different people. So one, that's a way to help it click with students because I observe, and this is not surprising, that many of the students, especially those who are K through JD, come to law school with no real, frankly, life or work experience. They've been students. Mm -hmm. They are professional students. And by the time they get to me, they become a professional law student. They're really good at law school by the time they get to me. And guess what? I do things completely differently than law school. <laughs> so some of mm -hmm. them like get mad at me because they just want, they want to do what they've figured out how to do to thrive in law school, but that's not what I'm asking them to do. And, and what I realize is that as much as I can share and as much as I can ask them to see the world through the eyes of our guests, for many of them, it takes actually getting out into the world and having the experience for it to click. That is definitely part of the challenge, especially if law schools are going to continue to draw primarily from the K through college market, right? And not approaching it admission more from like a business school perspective, like folks need a little experience in the real world before they come to us. Because the other observation I'll make is my students who do come to law school with substantial work experience. So they've held a job with a fair amount of responsibility for more than six months. Their approach, their outlook, their understanding is night and day compared to the average K through JD student. And, right. and it's, and, and frankly, they're much, they're much better equipped to navigate the choices that they face, that all of them face. So, you know, there are so many factors that go into it and it all comes down to law school could be doing a much better job. Yeah. Can I just note though, from listening to you sort of lay that out, what occurred to me is that one of the big factors that I remember was that I'm a first generation professional school. No one in my family had been to any education beyond uh, undergrad. No lawyers in the family, no one to ask, not from Toronto. And a lot of the people that I went to law school were or had lawyers in the family or even had people, knew people who worked at the firms. My only exposure to lawyers in law school was the, the people who came with the firms to those dinners or to do talks about their interesting practice. And no one ever talked about the ugly side of it, ever. This is the year, late 90s. But the the difficulty was masked all the time. And so very much part of our, our mandate to ourselves, Mike and I, on this podcast is to just talk about the stuff that we all quietly behind the scenes say, but that I really think law students need to hear because it's doubly bad because not only are those the only lawyers you meet, but the lawyers, I was one myself, uh, I did two summers. So I spent time as a brand ambassador <laughs> for a bunch of places. The students come back not having done the real work yet and evangelize basically about the model. And that's really the, the only 
exposure that students have. And it's cool. And when you say K to JD, these students have not yet, they're used to chasing the brass ring still and probably popularity, social status, recognition by that world is very, very, very loud at that age and stage. So I would just say that I felt incredible pressure to get a job at a big firm when I went through. I had never even heard of a big firm before I went to my law school. And I feel like I started to feel the pressure about one month in, in first, maybe one day in, because there was a lot of like free stuff around. And then doing those couple of years, though, I would say, has the other side of this is that that is viewed as the, the thing to do that makes you a good lawyer. And I think that's the other thing we have to kind of talk about here is that there's a perception that you're not a good lawyer if you don't go to one of these big firms. And I'd like to cut at that too, because I don't, I don't know that that should stand. I think that students should be able to make choices. And if we speak openly about people making a real choice not to go the big firm route, it might make, help to make that a real choice that still puts students on a road to high level positions without that experience. So I have that experience. I'm grateful for it, telling the whole story of how I felt about it, why I ended up there. But I'd love for other students to get the same career boost that I was able to get, not having to work at a big firm if they know from day one what it is and why it won't work for them. Mike, do you want to wade in on that quickly before I... Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I benefited from big firm articling experience where I think I got training and skills and practices and a view of process that has treated me quite well. Yeah, and I, and I do think that there is a gap. Where do folks get that if they want to go out on their own when to start, for example? And it seems like that doesn't exist unless, Kat, you know something that we don't. So once again, many thoughts. <laughs> Let me try to wrangle them in an organized fashion. So I absolutely agree that students should have the opportunity to explore in a more unfettered way, different potential paths. And it truly is an impediment to looking at different paths when your law school career services office is focused solely on the corporate law track. And you see all of your colleagues around you as Arlene, I think you probably observed when you got to law school, like that's what everybody's focused on. It's what they're talking about and on campus interviews. And it just becomes, especially if you don't know anything about any of it when you get there, which is most law students, even those who have lawyers in their family probably don't still know a whole lot about how it all works, honestly. And so they show up and you, they become like lemmings. They just follow the herd and this is what you do. And it does become a point of ego and pride. So Mm -hmm. knowing that culturally and knowing that students are actively in some instances dissuaded from choosing alternate paths that students have very clearly identified a line perfectly, or if not much better than with their values. And this happens. Like I, I hear stories from law students in different law schools. This is not just about my law school, but law students who share stories that they're dissuaded from pursuing certain paths by their career services office. And I think that's because, as I said earlier, their law schools and specifically that office, they're beholden to multiple stakeholders. And so again, that tension that comes up. I also want to emphasize what you said, Darlene, that some folks follow this path and have very successful, rewarding, happy careers. This is not a path that for all is a bad idea. 
And I think we can distill some truths about the, about the path. It is true in the U.S. that fewer than 12% of starting associates are going to make equity partner. It is really hard to grab onto that golden ring. And I think pretty much all of the students have this sense that they will be able to do that. <laughs> and, yeah. and the numbers just don't bear that out. And so how do we normalize and how do we, and not only how do we normalize acceptance of alternate paths and by alternate, I'm not talking about really even crazy things. I'm just talking about not going into a big corporate law firm, but how do we normalize taking these different paths? And also how do we equip students to succeed if that is the path they're going to walk? Because this is another challenge we face in legal education, again, at least in the U.S., that um, because of how the ABA regulates law schools, everybody gets essentially the same education. All first years follow the same general curriculum. And then electives may vary, programs may vary by school, but it is still essentially one flavor of legal education. And so everybody is walking the same exact path. So it should be no surprise that folks find it very hard to wander off the path and find a path that might be better for them from an industry and professional standpoint. For sure. And I, I do think to, in credit to the big firm a little bit and tying into and, and sort of explaining one reason for, for this, there is what I've kind of noticed is that when you leave law school, you don't really have a lot of real world skills. So for example, even in my own uh, in, uh, practice at Interalia, we don't have a lot of work that a first year could do. And we don't have a lot of clients who can afford to, or who would be open to paying to for the teaching and training process. So I do think that the big firm model does provide that to some. If you happen to get with a great partner and get good experience and stuff like that, there are not as many opportunities for the training that can be billed back to clients in that way. So that's one one thing that as you've been talking, I'm like, well, this is a something that law school could do a better job at, right? If you would leave and be a, a more, like know more about the law or have at least one course with useful skills, like having seen a contract or actually drafted a contract, which I never did in law school or some useful skills like that, maybe that's an, an option. But anyway, let's, at this point, we could talk about this for a long time. I don't think that Mike and I had any illusions that we would solve the uh, issue today. Our main objective was to just lay it out and, and start the conversation. And, and I would love to know from you, Kat, can you boil down some of your thinking on this into a big idea for law? Yes, I can. Thank you for asking. I would love to share my big idea. So <laughs> My big idea is really how can we, frankly, do put into practice what you just described, Darlene? How can we create a curriculum that builds on what law school does really, really well already? And how can we infuse these elements that are critical for students to learn and understand and have the opportunity to practice while they're still in law school? And this can't be, again, just an add-on on the side that sort of sits right. next to everything else they do. It needs to be imbued throughout, threaded throughout the law school experience. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, Kat, you will stay with us. I believe we're going to go to break and we'll come back with our goods and gripes.
The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. Kat, would you like to kick us off with a good or a gripe? So a good, something that is making me happy right now is that I'm in week 11 of 13 of my class. And so the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. (laughs) Mike? Do you have a good or a grape? I think from beginning of lockdown onward, I have just become the biggest fan of Seth Meyers and his show. And yes. I, Me too. Just, I, he brings so much joy to my day. I usually watch a closer look over lunch hour, like when I'm eating my lunch. And it, and when he was in his attic and everything got weird with the sea captain, and all, I just loved it. I love every bit. He yeah. makes me laugh out loud. When I'm watching television, and I, that doesn't happen to me. So, yeah. I completely echo your feelings about Seth Myers. He got better through the pandemic. I feel like the format for him was really great. And when he does the the bits about like calling Melania, oh my God. Like, I die laughing. Well, but what about my jambalaya? <laughs> I die laughing. And I do, I've actually noticed there are a couple of, I listen to Trevor Noah too, and I find that I've had a bunch of laugh out loud moments. And I don't know if my, like, I just have so little fun now that like any slight fun makes, gets a laugh out loud, but man, those guys are funny. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Kat. We so appreciate your time and expertise and your big idea. And I'm very glad to have been able to share a conversation with you because now I am one step closer to becoming your friend, like darling is. You are my friend, Mike. You are in. We are friends. Yay. (laughs) This has been awesome. It's so good to talk with you. Really great. Thank you so much again. And uh, we will talk soon. Okay. We will talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.